This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear John Purcell on developing a healthy church culture. John is a ruling elder and leadership coach. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as John Purcell considers how to establish a healthy church culture. I'm John Purcell, and um, I uh, am an organizational health consultant, uh, which means I work with churches and other organizations to help you be a healthy organization, which I believe is 95% about the health of the leader. And uh, physical health is important, but spiritual, emotional, and and uh, mental health is uh, more important when it comes to leadership overall. So that's, that's the arena that I'm in. I also have a CEO roundtable ministry of a national organization called Truth at Work. So I have a bunch of men and women that are Christians that own their own companies and we get together once a month to talk about how do we do that? How do we do that according to God's, uh, God's word? Why did he give us these organizations uh, to lead? So I'm thrilled that you are here. Um, this is going to be about something that's become more and more and more near and dear to my heart over the last few years. Uh, two years ago, last General Assembly, I did a seminar called How to Build an Ephesians 4 Church, where speaking the truth and love is the norm and not the exception. What I find, have found, and continue to find is we don't know how to do that, and we don't even know what that looks like, or have not even seen a good model of a conversation even, where having a difficult conversation and speaking the truth in love works. So I'm not giving up on this topic because I believe that it's, uh, it's on God's heart. So that's why uh, we're doing this, creating an open culture. We're having healthy debate and speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love is a part of every conversation, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation in the lobby, whether you are, uh, whether we're talking to someone that's struggling with sin, whether we're having an officer, a session meeting or a staff meeting or a ministry team meeting. It's just what the culture is, it's what we do. Um, 
We're going to talk about what the issue is. Why, why is this an issue? What's the issue even look like? We're going to talk about what I believe are seven uh, key contributors to making this an issue. Or you might look at it as the barriers that keep us away from more openness and realness in our relationships and our, and our work in the church. Um, as I said, I've decided that until we examine why are we not there and what keeps us from getting there, I don't think we ever will make progress to get there. We're going to talk about what's at stake. like my little icon of a stake there? What's at stake in doing this? Why is it so important? We're going to talk about what does it look like? What are a few examples or pictures of what it would look like if we could get there in our churches? And then finally, what are five different things you can do to start to move your church in that direction? Okay, so what's the issue? What are seven contributing factors? What's at stake? What does it look like? And how do we get there? Okay, the issue. There was a new pastor a church brought in that met the goals. The the, the new pastor met the goals of the pulpit committee. But the session never got to give input to the selection of this pastor and didn't even get to interview him. After a couple of years, various subgroups of the elders had different evaluations of the pastor. So they decided to give him a performance review. And the results were mixed, but they did put him on a performance improvement plan, and they gave him some specific things to work on over six months. After two months, they let him go. And he was working hard on, and from his perspective, was meeting every single thing they asked him to do. But after two months, They said, well, we had a split vote, but we went ahead and voted to let you go. Because they they really just couldn't agree. So there's an example of not having openness and not speaking the truth in love um, all along the way. Um, A church brought in their finalist candidate for a certain important staff role, a pastoral role on staff. From everything they could tell, this candidate, um, by the way, both these first two examples are 2021 examples this year. Everything they could tell, this was the ideal candidate. Everything fit, everything they were looking for. They had multiple interviews. And, and then, they were, then they had another interview time when the, the candidate and his wife were in a, in a particular environment. And... Um, some very odd things happened that concerned the, uh, the church about what happened in that interview. So they called the last two places this guy had worked, ministries, and the first ministry they said, we really like so-and-so, but as we were interviewing him, something came up that we wanted to ask you about. And the guy said, oh, I know what you're gonna say. And they said, well, is it such and such? And he said, yep. So you saw, oh yeah, we saw it. Well, how did he react when you talked to him about it? We didn't talk to him. We couldn't, it was a sensitive issue and we couldn't figure out how to do that. They called the previous Christian organization employer, asked them about it. They said, yep, we know about that. It was a problem and we never talked to him. 
we just passed them on to this other group that almost passed them on to your church, except you just caught it in the last interview. So to their credit, when they, the pastor called the guy up and said, we're not going to hire you, and he was floored. He thought this was happening and this was a perfect fit for me. And then he told him why. And again, he was floored. He had no clue about this thing. But to the church's credit, they finally, someone was willing to tell the truth to this young man. Next situation, staff firings. Um, A church that most people would say is an excellent church uh, has let different people go over the years. And in almost every case, the people that were let go were absolutely shocked and blindsided. And as is usually the case, the spouse of the person was even more hurt than that person. And, and especially hurt because their husband had no clue, and this was no way to treat my husband. And yet, if you talk to the supervisors of those people in that church, they would say, there's no possible way he could not have known what was going on there. Staff quitting. There's a church that brought me in because they had a lot of staff that had left over the, the, the previous year. And so I interviewed all the staff, former, former staff, present staff. And then I, uh, and then I went back to the, to the leadership and said, um, the issue here is that uh, there's a common theme, and that's that you have a culture of fear and subtle intimidation by the senior pastor. They, that's the first time they ever heard that. First time the senior pastor ever heard that at this church. Um, session extremes, uh, there, there are too many churches to, to, to name in this one, but I see constantly two extremes in the way a session operates. You, all, you could probably all name these extremes. I don't even have to say them. One extreme is... Um, Whatever the pastor brings us, we'll listen, we'll discuss a little bit, and we'll undoubtedly end up approving it. The other extreme is, whatever the pastor brings us, we will shoot at it, we'll try to find flaws in it, we'll shoot holes in it, and we'll make it almost impossible for him to execute on that. We may not ever even get to voting on it. Or if we do, it's a split vote, and so it doesn't feel safe, you know, to move forward. So what's going on in that church? I think some version of the same thing is going on in all these churches. We aren't truly willing to be open, to be honest, to speak the truth to each other, to bring out all of the uh, opinions, all the points of view, and debate them and discuss them and uh, to make decisions on them and then to move on in all these churches. Does anyone here have an example they'd like to share with the group? Probably probably should ask does anyone not have an example they'd like to share with the group. But if you do, I'd love you know, to hear it and we'll just repeat it. All right, that's okay. We'll just, we'll just move on from there. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what keeps, what happens in a church that isn't real, that isn't honest, that isn't uh, sometimes loyal. Um, when I say the meeting after the meeting in the parking lot, Everybody, you know, elders always laugh because we've all been in those meetings, right? And we still are in those meetings. 
What's wrong with the meeting after the meeting in the parking lot is that everything that was said there should have been said in the meeting, right? But there's a reason we're not. There's a reason we feel like we can't. So I think it's really important to explore what some of those reasons are. And if I'm, and I'm, I'm probably, these aren't all the reasons, but as I thought through them and as I've seen them, these are things that stand out to me. Are we possibly actually, starting with God's word, misunderstanding God's word? So what are some of the biblical verses that might lead you to say, I shouldn't rock the boat, or I shouldn't speak up? Anyone? What's a verse? Love one another. another. Yep. It might be unloving if I speak up. What else? All right, that's a good one. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. I might not, I'll be slow, I'll be so slow to speak that I won't speak. I'll just listen. What else? Be at peace with all people, in so far as much as you can, right? So I can by not saying anything. That, that means I'll be at peace. Any others? What's wrong, by the way, what's wrong with those exam- by using those examples as your, as your reason for not speaking up? Go ahead. Okay. Is that really peace? Is that really peace? Ken Sandy's right next door, I think. He calls it, if you've read his book, peace fakers versus peacemakers. That, that's peace faking. It's not really peace, especially if we're in the parking lot or out in the congregation on Sunday morning talking about it. And of course, love. What is love? Are we really loving that person? Um, is it in Proverbs? Uh, uh, better is the man, is my um, uh, an enemy that speaks the truth than a friend that doesn't? Something like that. I've paraphrased it. Better than an enemy that speaks the truth than a friend that holds back on speaking the truth. So, thank you. Yes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yeah. The friend has loved you better than the person that, that didn't speak up. That's good. Yeah, I'm, I mean, so, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 5.13 is a be at peace with each other. Colossians 3.12, um, be compassionate, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiving each other. Forgiveness is one that we didn't bring up. I'm just being forgiving. Um, and above all these, put on love. Put on love. Um, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. We could use that one, right? We're just submitting to our leaders by not speaking up. Or James 3, the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue is real. And James, you know, really uh, uh, pounds on that one. Uh, So we don't want to, you know, we don't want that to be our offense, that our tongue is... uh, is harming people. So those are all reasons that we can uh, that we can that we can avoid speaking up, that we can not tell the truth, or we can sugarcoat the truth, or walk around the truth, um, or not truly engage in a conversation, uh, or uh, just engage lightly and then back off. Okay, those are all reasons. Number two, a lack of connection with our own hearts. A lack of connection with our own hearts. 
This is very personal to me because until 15 years ago, I had a huge lack of connection with my own heart. And even though my personal profile would be that I would be a very challenging person, there are a lot of times when I wouldn't because of stuff going on in my own heart that I didn't know about. Um, James 4 says the causes of quarrels and fights among us are our passions and our desires within us. In other words, our hearts aren't in a good place. And understanding our passions and understanding our desires is really, really core to being able to do what we're talking about. We really have to do work in our own hearts. And that, that can hold back a more timid person, that can hold back a more strong person, um, or a more strong person can tend to, to speak up and create harm because it feels unloving. But another kind of person, a more empathetic sort of person, can say, well, it won't, I, make, I need to make sure I love this person, so I'll speak with love, but I'll miss the truth. So lack of connection with our own hearts is a big one. Number three, a lack of models. A lack of role models or examples um, and experiences. How many of you that are, are in the uh, marketplace would say that we're better at this in my business than we are in my church? I was in the marketplace for many years. I, I would know that. We're better at this in my business than we are in the church. Well, why is that? So I'll give you a real life example. Um, so there's a ministry I'm gonna mention more than once here called Wellspring Group. And we have a process called the Battle for the Heart. And it's something I will recommend to you as a great, great experience to help build the thing we're talking about here. It impacted me greatly. Um, so I was uh, a facilitate, help facilitating a retreat called the Battle for Your Domain. And part of that retreat, one of the things we do is we model how to have a difficult conversation in front of the group. And we model it not by role playing, but we use real ammunition. So I was asked if I would model it with the founder and the executive director of the organization, a guy named Larry. I was the board chairman at the time. So our modeling was board chairman talking to executive director. He didn't know what I was gonna be talking about. So we sat down with you know, chairs up here on the platform. And I said, Larry, over the last year, uh, you know, one of our jobs as your board is to support you and to love you well and love you well by holding you accountable and coming alongside you however we can. But, and he was trying to write a book. I said, when it comes to writing this book, um, I, I know there are several times that I personally ask you, how can we help? Every time you said, I'm good, I've got it covered, so-and-so's helping me, and so-and-so's come alongside and is helping to you know, be a proofreader for me. And then when the year ended, it came out that you really did need, need our help but we didn't have that chance to do it. And so uh, we love you, we wanna support you, and uh, uh, how can, how can um, what would help you to be, actually be more open to our offering to help you with things like that? So he received it very well and he responded and even had a tear through the discussion. And then we closed out the discussion and came down off the stage and this young lady walked right up to me and, and she said, that was awesome. And I said, well, thank you. What was so awesome about it? She said, I've never seen anything like that. And I could never do anything like that. And I said, like what? She said, talk about such a difficult subject in such a soft way. 
that it was received well. And she said, I'm on the staff of a church and I've never seen anything like that or experienced anything like that in my life. Isn't that sad? So we haven't seen it. We don't know what it looks like. But she saw it and she knew what she liked. And I just said to her, well, I've got good news for you. You can learn how to do this. What you just saw me do, I couldn't have done a few years ago. I've learned how to do this. I've had good models. I've practiced it. I've made mistakes, but I've learned it. You can too. And she goes, wow, that, thank you. That gives me a lot of hope. I would never think I could, but I believe you if you tell me that I could learn how to do this. It's a learned skill. But also is a learned skill that takes heart work, that takes dealing with those barriers in my own heart that would keep me from doing that because I wanted to please somebody or I want to be affirmed by that guy, especially in the role he was in. Um, so that just, that's one example. Um, I think we misunderstand our, who should be our number one model for this, Jesus. I think we think Jesus was a nice guy. And I have that bracelet, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And I'm thinking, well, Jesus wouldn't rock the boat and, uh, to the, to, to, and take the chance of getting the other elders mad at him in the session meeting. Or would he? That's not the Jesus in the Gospels at all, is it? But we tend to think, to be like Jesus, I can't make someone, mad, someone get upset at me. Well, no, not if I do it the wrong way. But if I, do it in a, I can do it in a loving way, that will, um, that will uh, be received as love. I think we also have dysfunctional church cultures that prevent our churches from functioning in a way that builds organizational health. And I find this a lot in churches when I go in and do what I call a needs analysis. I'll interview all the key leaders and the, the real culture of the church comes out through uh, what they share with me. So cultures can be changed. Some of you pastors have gone into cultures that have been dysfunctional. Some of you are in them right now. It takes hard work to change them, but cultures need to be changed if they're like that. Um, yeah, so we'll move on to the next one. A lack of training. You can actually be trained on things like this. I've developed a training on how to do this. Uh, if you want an expensive training on it, there's an organization that will uh, charge you a whole lot of money to train your people, but they'll do a great job in it. Uh, but uh, we, when did we ever get trained in how to have difficult conversations? And when I do the training, I absolutely do role-playing. You've got to experience it. And I pair people up and I ask them, come up with a, a real scenario from your organization and, and talk about it. So lack of training, number five, false choice between truth and love. So how often do we think if I speak the full whole truth, it'll, be, it'll feel unloving? Or if I am truly uh, loving with this person, um, they won't hear the whole truth. That's a false choice, but it's, a, it's an important one. So we feel like truth and love are, are on a pendulum. And way over on one side is truth. But if you're way over there, if you're speaking the truth, you can't be loving. And, and you'll probably lose the person from your church, for instance, 
Or if you're way over and really loving, you've got to sacrifice the truth. Well, I believe that in God's economy, that with God, there are two pendulums. There's a truth pendulum and a love pendulum, and they both exist. What you don't want to do is come halfway down and say there's one pendulum, so I'll give you half truth and half love. I'll love you a little bit, and I'll give you a little bit of the truth. That's not loving at all, and it's not truthful at all. And you can replace truth and love with the fact that God is our judge and God is also our loving father. So God is both, and he doesn't sacrifice either one. Or you could say results in relationships. This is something I talk about all the time, that we are to focus on getting results. Like Jesus was on mission, totally on mission. No one was ever more on mission than Jesus, but no one was ever more loving than Jesus. So relational and results. Here's a challenge. We're wired one way or the other. Based on your behavioral profiles, I could tell you which, one, which ones of you are wired. Half this room is wired more to be um, loving, and half are, of you are more wired to be uh, get results. Results, relationships. 20% um, of us have both in our profiles. 80% only have all your traits are one or the other. All of them. And 20% of us are, have some of both, but we still tilt one way or the other. I've got both traits in me, but my tilt is strongly toward results. So what we need to understand is no matter which way you are tilted, you are at your best if you focus more on the other one so that they become closer to being both and than, than just one. So I was, I was coaching a young pastor that his, his profile was all relational. He was so extroverted. He would drop things at a moment's notice. He'd be working on his sermon. Somebody needs me. Boom. I'm out of here. So I asked him this question. I said, based on your tilt, can you think of any situations where you've actually harmed relationships by not focusing more on results? He said, after a long pause, my pause was because I was feeling the pain. Because I can think of so many times that was true. So if you want to get better results, focus more on relationships. If you want to get better relationships, focus more on results. You can think in the church of a thousand reasons for that. And if your results are added, the same thing goes. You'll get better results if you focus more on relationships. But that, that's a challenge because God wired us one way or the other. Here's an interesting thing. Our, the way our brains are actually wired in results in relationships make this a challenge. I'm going to pray, play for you a brief video of a brain scientist talking about this. It's very brief, but I, I think it's going to rock your world in some ways. His name is uh, Richard Boyatzis, Dr. Richard Boyatzis, and he's at Case Western Reserve. He's a co-author of my favorite book, on emotional intelligence for leaders, it's called Primal Leadership. So Daniel Goleman, you know, the EQ guy, and Brian Boyatzis co-authored that book. Highly recommend that book. And uh, here, here he is talking about this. The, the current status of neuroscience, especially social neuroscience, 
and the current capabilities, at least for the past 15 years of fMRI technology, have enabled us to understand how neural functioning affects our behavior at a level we didn't before. So for example, one of my colleagues, Professor Tony Jack, had a paper that just came out in NeuroImage showing that when you give people analytic problems, financial, those kinds of things, where you're analyzing it, you activate a part of the brain that's heavily in the executive function called the task positive network to neuroscientists. He also showed that when you give people social problems, someone crying, someone asking for help, someone asking somebody else out on a date, that you activate a different network. He calls it the social network, which is a subset of the default mode network. It's in a different part of the brain. What Tony showed is that these two networks have almost no overlap. But people had known that before. What Tony's data made very clear is that when you activate the task positive network, you suppress the social network and vice versa. So every time we take people who are in business, every time we take MBA students and say, we're going to teach you accounting, we're going to teach you finance, we're going to teach you economics, we're going to teach you operations, we're going to teach you strategy by studying cases, we're going to teach you leadership by studying case studies of leadership, the only thing we're doing is activating the task positive network. So most people in MBA programs graduate with deficiencies in the social realm. They know how to analyze the hell out of things going on in the organization, but they don't know how to do anything. And what's worse is, because the task positive network closes you down, they don't even notice the people around them. Now, to be effective in any leadership role, you have to be able to solve problems, and you have to be able to deal with people. You have to be able to focus, and you have to be able to be open to new ideas. We think the most effective leaders cycle back and forth between these networks in under a second. We also know that in this default mode network, where you're more open to people, you're more open to new ideas, you're more creative, that's where you can think outside the box. Unfortunately, we need to focus to solve problems, but every time we focus, we eliminate information. We close down uh, in that sense. Well, a person needs to do that at times, but if they don't scan the environment, if they're not open to other people, and we have the other dimension, um, which is an important aspect of the value-based leadership doctoral program here at Benedictine, is that being open to moral concerns is a part of this default mode network. Not moralizing, not the thumping on um, a biblical text talking about what's right and wrong, but the issue of thinking about whether or not it's fair, thinking about whether or not it's uh, just. That is moral concern that goes along with empathic concern. So if that's true, what are the implications of that? What do you think about? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, anybody? What are the implications of that? There's some serious implications. Regard yes. We need both. We need both, for sure. Results and relationships. But Were you ever in a meeting? I mean, just picture this in one of your session meetings or a staff meeting when someone's arguing for results, basically, in some way, shape, or form, and someone's arguing for, or even one camp versus another camp is, is really arguing for, but how's this going to impact people? 
And what we just heard was, it's very difficult for them to come off their position because they're, this is using the default uh, uh, the past positive network and, and this one's using the social network of their brains and that which shuts down the other part of their brains. Matt. Polarize, yeah, in the church we polarize by, by seeing one and not the other. The other thing I think about every time I see this is I've got to be so intentional about both, about focusing on both. I've got to remember, oh, I don't want to get too down the road on the task because so then I forget about people. So I've got to intentionally focus and, and vice versa. So we need, here's another thing about healthy leadership teams. We need people that are wired both ways. You need elders that are wired both ways. You need staff that are wired both ways. If not, you need to invite someone into the room that represents the other side. Because, and then, and then you, everyone needs to be aware, okay, I know I'm wired this way. I'm going to have a blind spot over here. So I need this person. This person needs me. Uh, I think on, on the floor of the General Assembly we see this happening. Let's uh, make sure that we're accurate in our statement on whatever. Oh no, let's make sure that we are attending to the people that are struggling with this thing. You see how they're operating on different parts of their brains even, in that argument, which we, and we need both. And did you notice that he also said when we're operating out of just the task positive, when we're in that mode, we're not as creative. We don't come up with as, broad of a spectrum of potential answers and solutions and ways to go about things, uh, which is ironic. Let's just really focus on solving this problem. We're not going to be able to solve the problem in as creative of a way. So that's why you know, they say that we need to get away. We need to go for a walk. We need to go to the mountains for a strategic planning retreat as a, as a team so that we can, and, and we don't just need to work every minute. We need to play together. We need to do things together. We need to forget about it so that God can free up the parts of our brain that he designed to work that way. I don't know why he did, but he obviously did. So uh, these are seven pretty compelling, uh, you can call them factors, contributing factors. You can call them roadblocks to having an open culture, or you can call them excuses for not buckling down and doing the hard work of uh, speaking the truth and just letting it go. Okay, what's at stake? This, is, this will go quickly, this one. I believe these eight things are at stake. Imaging God, truly imaging the God who is truth, all truth and all love. All obedience and all grace at the same time. Uh, true biblical community. True biblical community comes from being in a place where we trust each other enough to speak the truth to each other and we trust each other enough to just all out love each other well and, and to believe that truth is love. Um, this uh, Loving each other. Discipleship and spiritual growth happens through truth and love. A healthy organization 
It's a, it, this stuff is at the core of a lot of the dysfunction of uh, church organizations and how, how we operate. An effective church, true joy. Um, I know some churches that have, are going down this path and uh, uh, have experienced this among their session and among their staff. And I, was, I got to help them in, in some of this and got to go back and do a, uh, a year, one year checkup. And I went around and asked everybody how they were experiencing where they were at right now. This was a, an executive session of eight, eight men. And uh, there were glowing reports, but the best part was when I got to the senior pastor. And he looked at those men and he said, the last year has been my best year out of X number of years of, of pastoring. And he said, the key reason is you men and what you've meant to me, that I look forward to this night uh, among all nights of the month to be with you guys. And, and do, not because you've been easy on me, you've been hard on me, but we've been in this community together where we have this kind of stuff working. True, he was, I saw true joy being expressed by him about what was happening there. And then glorifying God through a more beautiful bride. So that's what's at stake. Um, what does it look like? Uh, I shared with you about the one engagement at the Battle for Your Domain. Um, one church called me in to coach a young leader that was going off the rails in uh, his relationship with people and staff outside of his department. And uh, uh, that's what I was told was the problem. So I talked to him, and he was open to being coached and, and uh, figuring out. He said, I don't understand the problem. I understand what they're telling me, but I don't understand the problem. So I interviewed a bunch of the other people, and then I asked four of them, would you have the courage to get in a room with me and this young man uh, for uh, two or three hours and answer these questions? How has his leadership positively impacted you? How has his leadership negatively impacted you? If I promise that it'll be safe for you to do that, and he wants that to happen. He, he wants to learn. Well, I don't know, I don't know. Finally, the four people agreed to say yes. And we had the most beautiful time, about two and a half hours of unpacking those questions and him being able to say, can you, can you tell me, can you explain a little bit more this time that you said that I, I, I offended you, um, what it was that I said? You know, he was able to pull out more and I was able to help facilitate that. And at the end, we, I said, how did you all experience this? All five said, this was, so, this was so good, and I so much feared it would be nothing good come out of it, but it was so good. I understand this person's heart. This person understands this person's heart, heart, heart better. Uh, we really can build a relationship from here. That's what it can look like. And for the first time, he understood, because they looked him in the eyes, and they told him the truth, in love. By the way, if you want to know, um, just in a few words, what speaking the truth in love or having a difficult conversation, the core of it, uh, you, you, most of, of you know Dr. Henry Cloud. Cloud and Townsend wrote uh, all of the uh, boundaries books. So Dr. Cloud says, 
Be hard on the issue and soft on the person. So if you only want to remember one thing going into a hard conversation, ask yourself, how can I be hard on the issue but soft on the person at the same time? Um, there's one church that had, uh, has an executive staff of about six people, and they agreed for all six to do 360s. Um, anonymous 360s, online 360s. So we got about 20 people to give uh, feedback on multiple questions. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an online 360 I use that's very, very helpful and good for that. And so they all got the results, and I walked through all the results with them one-on-one. -on -one. But this was the big part. I said, are you willing to get together as an executive team of six and do this and, and share with each other uh, what you're glad, what what was gratifying to you in your results, and what you are um, not so happy about, and and maybe ask them for some more input to help you more fully understand it. So they did that. And of course, I made the senior pastor go first, because to the extent he's going to be vulnerable, the rest will be only as vulnerable as he will be. So here's what happened. He said, oh, "I was really happy about a lot of things. This, 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 and this." But there's one area that really concerned me, and these are the questions that seem to be more about what I feel like is integrity. And I, those were some of my poorest results. And he said the group that gave me, now he didn't know what any one individual said, but we group them by category. So his peer category was them. He said the category that gave me the lowest scores on this was you guys, my peers. And I just want to understand better um, where my blind spots are. So as a facilitator, this is the moment that I love. Because I have a decision. Am I going to step in and say something? And in this case, I just sat back and said, let's wait and see who says something. Well, the, the most senior guy in the room, God bless him, finally spoke up. And he said, well, here's those questions that you said. Here's why I could have answered them. He said, I don't remember those questions, but here's why I would have maybe marked you down a little bit. Well, that gave the next person courage and the next person. Everybody gave feedback, and by the time I got around to the senior pastor, he said, that's very fair. And I understand it in a whole different way now, and I understand what I thought was not important. And it was about him following through on what he said he was going to do was the bottom line issue. He said, I, I know, I know, I've said myself, I'm not really good a lot of times at following through what I say, but now I see how it impacts you in a way I didn't see before. And they all did the same thing. They went around and they all shared their stuff and got feedback from everybody. And then they made a pact. Everybody found something to work on for personal growth. And then they held each other accountable at their staff meetings, at their executive staff meetings. That's what it can look like. Um, I want to show you this chart. A friend of mine developed this. What we're talking about on this continuum from withdraw to dominate is something that's not halfway withdrawing or halfway dominating. It's something different altogether. It's called engaging. What do you notice about the emotions that drive those uh, withdraw and dominate? Same emotions, right? And they're negative emotions. Can any of you identify, like I can, 
with having been withdrawn or, and then gone to dominate, or dominate wasn't working, so I withdraw. I can identify with that personally. Engage is something whole other that takes courage, love and respect, trust, humility, optimism, self-respect, and confidence to energize you to initiate, to dialogue, to work through, to involve, to believe. And that's what engaging looks like. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about engaging one another, engaging in a group, in a, in a meeting, engaging one-on-one, -on -one, not withdrawing, but not dominating. But of course, some of us are wired to dominate by your profile, and some of you, us are wired to withdraw by your profile. So what we need to do is, is understand where our uh, strengths overdone can become weaknesses. It's, it's a strength to not be, you know, always try to dominate, but if you overdo that, then you're not going to engage. So this is a really helpful chart um, and a really helpful way to think about it is what we want to do is engage. Okay, how can we get there? If that's what it looks like, if that's a compelling picture, if you would love to have uh, staff meetings, ministry team meetings, session meetings that look like that, that look like those kind of conversations, healthy debate, healthy engaging, bringing everything out on the table, focusing on both relationships and results. If you'd like to have a culture like that, how would you get there? This is what I think. Number one, establish a goal to build a culture that's open, that's honest, that's loving, that's accountable at the same time, and that focuses on both results and relationships. And, I could, and you could put vulnerability in there that's vulnerable. So establish that as a goal. Start with yourself. Look at whether you are conflict averse or too drawn to an unloving conflict, you know, too ready to, to jump in and, and, and battle. Um, here, are my, here are the two books that I would recommend. Um, first one, Crucial Conversations, how to, how to talk about anything at any time with anyone, if you do it in the right way. I've coached many leaders that are naturally conflict-averse using this book because it gives you a pathway to a difficult conversation. And it would be helpful in a meeting just as much as in a one-on-one -on -one situation. And Everyone Culture is a book that blew my mind. Some consultants found three companies, secular companies, in very different industries that all came to roughly the same place of building this kind of culture that I'm talking about. Not based on biblical foundation, just based on the fact that it gets, it gets us to our mission better than the opposite does. So what these guys said, these, these, these consultants, they said, in any organization, every employee has two jobs. And you would say maybe every elder has two jobs, every deacon has two jobs. One job is doing the one that your written job description says you're, you're there to do. But we all have a second job. It's hiding our weaknesses from everybody else in the room and in the organization. Can anyone else identify with that? And guess how much time, effort, and effectiveness is sacrificed to get that second job done? What would the organization look like 
if you could create a culture where everybody gave that job up and there was no shame in having a weakness. The shame would be in not admitting your weakness and not being vulnerable about it and not working on it if it was a weakness that was hurting the team. Just imagine a culture like that. Well, this book and everyone culture describes three companies that are working hard at building that kind of a culture. And then, starting with yourself, I, t I mentioned the Battle for the Heart experience, organization called Wellspring Group. Um, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend looking into it. Um, I'd be glad to talk to you about it and give you my own personal testimony on its impact on me. Uh, wellspringgroup.org is the website if you want to see some video testimonies and, and learn more about it. Or get personal coaching on uh, your own interactions uh, with people and what those look like, just like the uh, pastor that I told you about. Okay, then expand. You start with yourself. Oh, okay. Expand to your two key leadership teams, which are, and, and build those into cohesive leadership teams. Your two key leadership teams are these, your session and your staff. So if you start working on yourself, and then you work with the session, how can we become that kind of a team? And you work with the staff, how can they become that kind of a team? And then it can flow down from there when they experience the awesomeness of building a team like that. Um, if you, if you want to, I did some training at uh, Metro Atlanta Seminary just this month. And it, it, you can find it on my website, which is transform-coach.com. If you go to my website, look under Cohesive Team, I just placed the video of it. It was a Zoom training. So I just placed a video on it just uh, two days ago on my website. So you can see it there. It's 40 minutes plus Q&A on how to build a cohesive team. The title of the training was How to Build a Great Relationship Between the Teaching Elder and the Session. But it's about how to build a cohesive team. Do a team workshop based on good, healthy team models and a good behavioral profile. If your team, if these two teams are too big, make them smaller teams. Now, what's too big? Uh, Patrick Lencioni wrote the book, great book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I do my team building based partially on his book. He says he's never seen a team that was truly cohesive according to his team model that had more than eight people on it. So what happens when you have more than eight elders? You should have an executive elder board. It's called, under the Book of Church Order, it would be called a governance commission. Why? So that they can be a healthy governing team and free the rest of the elders up to shepherd. And you could have a shepherding commission, too. When you have more than eight staff, you need to have an executive staff. And that can, that can Pastors have found that makes a huge difference. It's a hard, it's a hard, I was there. I was there when Perimeter Church passed that size and we had to have an executive staff. It's a hard thing to do to say, you can't be in the room. Of course, some people say, thank you. I don't want to be in that room. But uh, believe me, you can build a cohesive team that does results in relationships and makes decisions well if you make it smaller. And there are ways to do that that are very, very healthy. 
Um, train, you can do training on having difficult conversations. Tell your life stories to each other. If you want to get to know, you have to get to know each other to, to build a healthy, vulnerable relationship. And so telling life stories, having a life story retreat is a great way to do it. Consider, consider that battle for the heart process that I suggested to you. And as you do these things with your elders and with your staff, you'll be training, building those teams, you'll be training your elders and you'll be training your staff in this, uh, in this culture. Um, change your meetings. So Lencioni also write a book, wrote a book called Death by Meeting. I highly recommend it. If you've got the advantage, what he shares in that other book is in the advantage also. Death by meeting, that's what we all think, right? Meetings are bad. Great quote from Lencioni, only bad meetings are bad. Meetings don't have to be bad. Meetings, a meeting is where, a meeting is a leader's stage. A meeting is where a leader gets real work done. So if real work isn't getting done, in your meetings, your staff meeting, your session meeting, your ministry meetings, it's because you need to change your meeting. And here are two recommendations. Open every meeting with a check-in and close every meeting with an evaluation. So here's, here's what that looks like. The check-in is, before we get down to business, how's everybody doing today, really? As you come into this meeting, you're carrying burdens, you're carrying preoccupations, you're carrying pain, you're carrying joy. How are you coming into this meeting? It's not one of those, how you doing? Fine, good, okay. It's I really wanna know. And sometimes stuff comes out where you say, you know what, that's more important than the rest of this meeting. Let's talk about what's going on with you. And we'll, or let's do that at another time and let's, you know, but we need to talk about it. So do a check-in before, I've had, I've gone into churches where I've never been before and I've been with the session and I'll go around and do this with the elders. I've had stuff come out. I had an elder one time, see I, I went first and I was vulnerable. So the next elder was kind of vulnerable. We got to the fourth elder, he said, you know, my, my wife is a, is a, is a, uh, you know, an alcoholic, and um, we've tried everything, and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, well, this is, this is very tender, but here's what blew my mind. When we took a break, the elders rushed up to this guy and said, I'm sorry, I didn't know. This was a smaller church with a small session, and they did, and this elder had never felt safe to share that. And all I did was created a safe place in the room by being vulnerable first. And he shared it. So that's a check-in. That's a check-in with, that's a check-in in spades there. And then close every meeting with an evaluation. It just goes like this. How did you experience this meeting? And if you don't have much time, say in three words or less, how did you experience this meeting? And what you want is you want to evaluate, you want everyone to evaluate, okay, what, what happened in here? How do I feel about it? And over time, you'll have better meetings because you're asking. So do a check-in and close it with an evaluation. If I had time, I'd do that here, but this is too many people to do it with. Uh, and then finally, constantly reinforce this culture. 
you can't, you don't change culture, <coughs> excuse me, in a month, you don't change, change culture in a year. It, you know, it's a multi-year effort uh, to change culture. So, uh, so constantly reinforce it. Okay, so we talked about what, what the problem looks like. We talked about seven contributing factors to the problem. Um, we talked about what's at stake and why the problem is important, why it's important not to just let it go. We talked about some pictures of what it would look like or what it could look like if you, uh, if you work on it. And we talked about five things you can do to work on it. So big issue. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for your attention. Have a great General Assembly. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.